Before I, I came to All Souls, I was a vicar of a church in Maidenhead in Berkshire on the River Thames. Anyway, about uh, 10 years ago, when I still was able to run, I went up for a run with one of our ministry trainees called Guy. And we came across a swan who'd got itself uh, stuck in the, the river. I, I should have uh, called run Swan Rescue, something like that, but actually I thought we could sort it out. So I, uh, exercising good delegation, I suggested to Guy that as a younger man, he should go into the river to release it. So there we were, doing good to the swan, but it didn't seem to appreciate our help. As you can imagine, I was safely on the riverbank, offering kind of helpful suggestions. Uh, and uh, eventually, Guy managed to release the swan. Um, it's got its head under the root, at which point the swan turned around, bit Guy, before swimming away. Now, you can understand that sort of treatment from an animal. It's ruled by instinct and knows no better. But when you're clearly doing good to people, and then they attack you for doing good, that is a different matter. But that's what we see happening in our passage from Mark's gospel. Jesus comes to do good and to save life, but people, instead of embracing him, plot to kill him. Look at uh, chapter 3, verse 6, the final verse of our passage. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. It's staggering. We're only just at the, the start of uh, Mark chapter 3, but Jesus has already done enough to up people, upset people so much that they want to kill him. The extent of the hatred that people have for Jesus is seen in who is ganging up against him. The Pharisees, well, they're meant to be the good guys. They are upright, moral, devout businessmen. And they're the sort of people you want your daughter to marry. And because they were devout, actually, they were against the, the Gentile Roman occupying power. The Herodians, though, on whom they were plotting with, they were a pro-Roman group. Uh, the Pharisees and the Herodians detested each other. But their even greater hatred for Jesus brings them together to plot his death. Can I ask you, is there anything in your view of Jesus that can account for such hatred against him? It's hard to think why somebody who came to teach and to bless and to heal should upset moral religious people so much so that they will gang up with their enemies to snuff him out. That's what we're thinking about tonight. And we're going to be thinking about how that relates to us today. Now, the concerns about Jesus amongst the Pharisees had been mounting. So first, uh, back in the beginning of chapter 2, Jesus claimed to forgive sins. Then he was associating with the wrong kind of people. And then he was not observing the traditions about fasting. But it appears to be Jesus' attitude to the Sabbath and the claims he made about himself in relation to it that kind of sealed his fate. So let's just spend some time thinking a little bit about the Jewish Sabbath. When God rescued his uh, 
people out of slavery in Egypt. He entered into a covenant, an agreement with them, and he gave them his law. And the headlines of the law are what are known as the Ten Commandments. These were the words that God spoke directly to the Israelites from Mount Sinai. And they are wonderful commandments concerning our relationship with God and with one another. And the fourth commandment goes like this. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servants, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. Get the point? Nobody is to work. Have a break. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. One of the ways that the Israelites would show the world what a wonderful thing it is to have God, the God of Israel as your God, was by them observing the Sabbath day of rest. See, in the ancient world, it was unheard of to have a couple a weekly day off. Slaves in particular were expected to, to, to work. They, they got no break. But God, because he's good and kind and knows what we human beings need for our health and flourishing, commanded his people not to be like the surrounding nations, but to take a regular time off, to rest and to worship him. Wasn't that kind of God? Now, work is a good thing. It is a dreadfully dreadful thing if you are to be unemployed. And if you're in that situation, it's horrible, isn't it? But actually, it's also overwork is equally bad. And I suspect some of us today need to be reminded of this. God designed us, created us, to both work and to rest. He established the Sabbath day. He also, uh, later on in the law, commanded uh, the Israelites to observe three week-long festivals, when they're also to cease work. I've got to say, if you're not taking a regular day off to rest, to recuperate, and the odd week of uh, annual leave to stop and think about what matters most in life and your relationship with God... Not only, if you're not doing that, not only has your work become idolatrous, but you're, you're, you're being foolish. <laughs> and you're harming yourself. Friends, I think I said once before, you've got to always remember God's commands are always for people's blessing. He loves us. He wants to bless us. That's why he gives us his word. He gives us his commands. But if you know the Old Testament story, You'll know what happened. Instead of obeying God's good laws, the Israelites disregarded God and his ways. They broke the commandments repeatedly. They failed to observe the Sabbath day of rest. So God sent prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel to expose his people's failings. And through these prophets, God warned his people that if they didn't obey him and follow his commands, such as observing the Sabbath day, then the nation would be taken away from them. And that's what happened. The Israelites continued to rebel against God. They continued to ignore the Sabbath day and they ended up exiled in Babylon. So after the exile, when God's people returned to Israel, they knew that they must 
observe God's laws. And people like the Pharisees, what they did was to establish a whole set of other guidelines and rules to ensure that people observed the Sabbath. For instance, they limited how far you could walk. To, um, about, it's about, just about two-thirds of a mile. That's as far, as far as you can walk on the Sabbath day. You couldn't carry any burdens. And all cooking and preparation of food, certainly you couldn't be involved in any of that. You were not to work. So there are the disciples walking uh, with Jesus through a cornfield on the Sabbath day. And as they do so, the disciples begin to pick some ears of corn. Have you done that on a walk? Gone through a field and just done that. That's the sort of impression we get they're doing, casually picking up the corn. They didn't have their sickles out. This wasn't harvesting. But as far as the Pharisees uh, were uh, concerned, Jesus' disciples were breaking the law. Uh, clearly, by the way, the Pharisees didn't think that policing the behavior of everyone else on the Sabbath was work or breaking the law. Their hypocrisy is breathtaking. But how easy it is for keen religious people, like many of us are, to be very quick at picking up on the apparent failings of others while being completely oblivious to our own shortcomings. Anyway, Jesus responds with a provocative use of the Old Testament. He begins, verse 25, with, Have you never read... Well, that's a great way to wind up people who think that they really know their Bibles. And then Jesus goes on to refer to that incident that actually we had read for us as our first reading from one Samuel. David is on the run from Saul. His life is in danger. He has no food. And then he ends up having some of the bread that's only meant for the priests. Now, you could say he broke the law. And yet the point is, everybody has been fine with it. The priest at the time gave it the AK. The God-inspired writer of 1 Samuel doesn't make any disapproving comments. And nobody had kicked up a fuss in the intervening years. Jesus knows that the Pharisees would also have had no issue with what David either, because David, well, he was the Lord's anointed, the Christ, the Messiah. And that's the point that Jesus is making. David was the Christ. He was God's anointed one who was being pursued by false leadership. And it wasn't deemed inappropriate for him and his companions in a desperate situation to eat this bread, which had been consecrated. Do you see where Jesus might be heading with this? Jesus is also the Lord's anointed. He is actually the true Christ. He too is being pursued by people who, as it will turn out, want him dead. And what David, the Christ, was able to do then, Jesus, the Christ, can certainly do now. But then Jesus goes even further in what he says next about the purpose of the Sabbath. Verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. God did not come up with the idea of a Sabbath and then create people to observe it. No, God made and instituted the Sabbath day rest to bless his people. His intention is to help us to flourish and to live well and properly. The Pharisees, in thinking that's all about what, what, they, what you couldn't do, have just completely missed the point. 
And the reason that Jesus knows all this is because verse 28, he, the son of man, is Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is a, a title that Jesus used of himself. It, it has its origins in um, the prophecies of Daniel. In uh, chapter 7 of the Old Testament book that uh, bears his name, Daniel has a vision of one like a Son of Man who is ushered into the very presence of God where he is given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All people from every nation and language worship him. And his rule will last forever and his kingdom will never be destroyed. Jesus sees himself as that son of man. Earlier in uh, Mark chapter 2, Jesus has said that the son of man, using that phrase, has authority to forgive sins. And now he's saying that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. In fact, Jesus is saying, I'm in charge of this day. I designed this day. The rest that the Sabbath speaks of is a rest that ultimately only I can give. I am the one from where it came and I am the one to which it points. Every now and then people will come up to me and say, where does Jesus ever explicitly claim to be God? Well, friends, we've had three of them in Mark chapter 2. In the healing of the paralyzed man, Jesus claims and demonstrates that he has authority to forgive sins, something that only God can do. As we saw last week in claiming to be the bridegroom, Jesus was making a divine claim. And by saying that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus is, is claiming to be the creator himself and the lawgiver. And so we come to the showdown. Mark chapter 3, verse 1. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Well, we're not definitely told, but it seems likely this man with a shriveled hand was a put-up job. The Pharisees have already come to their conclusion, and they're looking for evidence to accuse Jesus. And what Jesus does is very striking. He doesn't duck the issue. In fact, you could say he's deliberately provocative. He could have waited, couldn't he, another 24 hours to heal the man? One more day wouldn't have hurt him, but he doesn't wait. Instead, Jesus asked the man to stand up in front of everyone. Notice that throughout this incident, Jesus doesn't do anything that could be classed as work. He doesn't walk over to the man or, or touch him. He just speaks. And then Jesus lays down this challenge, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or kill. I hope you do notice the deep irony of what Jesus says, because it demonstrates the complete contrast between what Jesus came to do and what the Pharisees came to do. What a wonderful summary, actually, this is of Jesus' ministry. 
He came to do good and to save life. What are the Pharisees about to do? They're about to come to do evil and plot to kill. Friends, when we come to put our trust in Jesus, we come under the loving rule of God. And as we submit to his rule and allow him to change our priorities and our aspirations, as we allow him to cleanse us from our guilt and to give us godly desires, we find rest for our souls. Now in the present But these are bodies of ours, aren't they? They're still plagued, aren't they, with evil desires. They get old. They don't work so well. They decay. They break down. But God has promised us through Jesus a rest beyond this present age, in the new creation, when all death and suffering and sin will be removed forever. And Jesus has come to do good, to heal, and to save. And this healing that Jesus did on the Sabbath, in fact, actually all of Jesus' healing miracles point ahead and they prefigure this perfect eternal rest. Jesus came into our world to do good and to save life. He came to bless, heal, and restore. So whoever we are, I can I say, especially if we're feeling bruised and broken and defeated, please, please don't keep Jesus' arm's length. Don't keep your distance from him. Instead, acknowledge before him your situation, your wretchedness, your brokenness, even itself your own doing or of other people who've just been caught up with circumstances. It doesn't matter. Jesus has promised that he will never drive anyone away who humbly comes to him. Isn't that wonderful? Because why? Because he's come to do good and to save life. That's why. And this explains why Jesus was so angry with these Pharisees. When Jesus asked that question in verse 4, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? There's no answer. Well, there's only one right answer to that question, isn't there? But these Pharisees remain silent. They won't acknowledge that what Jesus is about to do on the Sabbath is good and right. They're so wedded to their religious rules and traditions. They're so self-righteous and proud, they cannot see the goodness of Jesus. They will not acknowledge what is right and true and lovely. And that still happens in our generation. And Jesus gets angry. But please, never confuse Jesus' anger with the anger which we either display ourselves or have suffered under. Jesus is not angry because he hasn't got his own way or he's frustrated. No, we're told the cause of his anger. He is deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. This is anger born out of love and justice. These Pharisees have deliberately, hard-heartedly, tragically 
rejected the good, saving work that Jesus came to do. And so Jesus doesn't back down. He commands the man to stretch out his hand. Now, if you've got a shriveled hand, what's the one thing you can't do? <laughs> can't stretch it out, can you? It's the one thing you cannot do. If you've got, because Jesus gives the command, he is enabled to do it. And Jesus heals this man. And wouldn't we just love to know what happened to him and how people responded to him? But Mark isn't interested in telling us that. Instead, he just tells us, verse 6, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath who came into the world to do good and to save life. And what did people do? They plotted to murder him. Mark is telling us about his world. But he's also telling us about our world. We live in and are part of a Christ-rejecting world. And so, friends, we shouldn't never be surprised when the religious and political establishments of our generation are hostile and oppose the things of God. It shouldn't surprise us that in most parts of the world, Christians are either forbidden or harassed in their evangelism. The freedom that our generation has had to preach the gospel in this country is, in the history of the world, unusual. And it shouldn't surprise us if increasingly we get sick and are even hated, where in Jesus' name, we are simply seeking to follow the example of Jesus in doing good and saving life. Where the spirit of Jesus is at work, there you will find opposition and rejection. And so if we, uh, as uh, Christians, are coming across little opposition and rejection, it should make us ask some questions. Either we're just going through an unusual time of blessing by God, because we shouldn't expect this peace, or it's because there is little which is distinctive in the lives of Christians and churches. Dead churches and worldly Christians offend no one. But as we've been looking at Mark's Gospels these last four weeks, Jesus has actually been confronting all of us with the reality of who he is. And we've seen that he isn't somebody that we can remain indifferent to. See, Jesus comes to us and he makes outrageous claims about himself which are either true or they are deeply blasphemous. Do we recognize the divine authority of Jesus? You see, when we are relating to Jesus, we are relating to God. So when we're ignoring Jesus, we're ignoring God. When we're disregarding Jesus, we are disregarding God. But when we're embracing Jesus, we're embracing the creator God. When we're loving Jesus and his people, we are loving God. See, Jesus 
will intrude into our life to do good and to, to do good and heal and to save. That's what he wants to do. And so he will expose in us where we are hiding behind details that don't matter and where we're ignoring the big things that do. He will put his spotlight on our sin. Why? Because he wants to heal us. He wants to forgive us. He wants to cleanse us and make us new. See, there is no middle ground. The issue is not do we come to church so that we can be uplifted by the singing, preaching, and fellowship. No, we come to church to do business with Jesus. The issue is, is Jesus Lord and God, and I'll be relating to him as Lord and God. It is that black and white. Jesus does divide people. He did then, he does today. And at the end of the day, the whole of humanity falls into one of two camps. Either we will be like the Pharisees and the Herodians who just want to get rid of Jesus and remove him from the picture because we do not want him interfering with our life and upsetting the status quo. Or we will three. Christ's initiative and grace perhaps be more like that man with the withered hand. We hear Jesus address us. We don't resist him. Instead, actually, we, we trust him. We hear and recognize his voice and we obey him. And we find that as we do that, he restores us to fullness. It's a fullness that begins now. But we look forward to that time and it will be completed when he will return with all the glory of God and we will see him and praise him forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you that although you became a man and a human being like us, you are Lord and God. You are indeed the Lord of the Sabbath. You are qualified to tell us what is right and wrong, how we should live our lives, spend our time and energy and resources. And we thank you that you, you came and that you want to do good and to save life. You want to do good for us. Give each of us here this evening the grace to trust you and to obey you so that we may indeed know that forgiveness of sins and that the fullness of life that you came to bring. And we ask all this in your precious and glorious name. Amen.